from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 8th. Today, Bernie Sanders drops out. Trump advocates for an unproven treatment and the bard of broken hearts and dirty windows. Good morning, and thank you very much for joining me. So this morning, Senator Bernie Sanders announced that he was suspending his campaign for president. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. This was a moment that a lot of people, uh, both Sanders detractors and Sanders supporters, were wondering if this would come now, if this would come later. There was a lot of uncertainty about whether and even if he was willing to end this campaign before we got to the end of the primary season. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. He's suspending his campaign, and that effectively ends the Democratic presidential race. So a very, very significant moment today. My name is Sean Sullivan, and I'm a national politics reporter at The Washington Post, and I've been covering Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign for uh, the last year. More than the last year, actually. Sorry. I mean, what is time at this point, right? Yeah. (laughs) And what did Sanders say about why he decided that this was the moment to drop out? Well, he presented a couple of explanations for his decision. And the most notable part of it is he said that he thought about the current coronavirus crisis as he weighed his future. As I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people, In this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. So his decision is directly tied to what we're seeing going on around the rest of the country and the world right now with this pandemic. And the other part of that, which he alluded to in in that quote, and he explained at more length uh, in another part of his remarks today, was that he just didn't see a path to victory. And as we look at the last few weeks, he just wasn't finding any traction in any state or any place where it looked like he could break through. There was a time not that long ago when he was considered the front runner in this race, but In the last few primary contests that we've seen, Biden has dominated. He's not found any path to victory. And the pandemic hasn't changed that. As people have looked at this race over the past couple of weeks, it hasn't changed. The polls have shown that Biden is still a clear leader. And so I think that weighed on his mind as well, that the changes that have been happening around this campaign have not really changed the dynamic in this race. And it was almost impossible, he concluded, for him to win. And so he was going to end his campaign. So I hope this doesn't sound like a like a dumb question. But now that Sanders has dropped out, is that it? Is Biden the Democratic nominee? 
he is going to be the nominee. That's effectively the upshot of what happened today. And it's something that I think a lot of Democrats have sensed was going to happen over the past few weeks. Now, there are some technical things at the convention, things like the party platform, negotiations over what the party is going to stand for. There are some committees where people who support Sanders are going to want to have some influence. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. Today's decision by Senator Sanders makes that clear, removes any remaining drama that would have existed otherwise. But Biden's going to be the nominee. And for the Democratic Party, that's that's what they're looking at moving forward. So then what happens from here on out? Like if Bernie Sanders represented this ultra liberal wing of the party, is there still a chance that those people will essentially fall in line behind Joe Biden because he's a better alternative to Donald Trump? And and is there a future where we see Democrats really coming together in the next few months? That is a huge, huge question for the Democratic Party right now. And I don't think we know the answer quite yet because we see a lot of Sanders supporters who don't like Joe Biden, who are not happy with him. Uh, as the nominee, they are not happy with the idea of him leading this party into battle in November. And we've even seen some Sanders supporters say, I'd rather vote for Donald Trump or I'd rather vote for a third party candidate. That's a problem that Biden is going to have to deal with, that Biden's campaign is going to have to deal with. And to what extent do you think that Sanders himself may or may not play a role in that? Like, is there a world in which he endorses Joe Biden, even though he spent the last year railing against him? There is a world where that happens. And one key difference is that Sanders's relationship with Biden is very, very different than Sanders's relationship with Hillary Clinton was. The Clinton-Sanders dynamic was never good. They ran against each other as a one-on-one battle for a long time. This race has unfolded very differently. There were a lot of different candidates. There were a lot of different battle lines. And Sanders has said over and over again, he counts Joe Biden as a friend. Uh, They like each other. They seem to get along a lot better. So that gives some supporters on both sides hope that the rancor and the tension that we saw in 2016 is not going to happen again this time around. But at the same time, if you look at some of the things that Sanders supporters have said in interviews on social media and elsewhere, there is a lot of disappointment in Biden as a candidate. Uh, his policy positions in many ways are very different from Sanders. He does not support a Medicare for all system. He does not support some of the sweeping liberal ideas that Sanders has. And I think there's still a lot of lingering animosity among Sanders supporters about the notion of Biden being the nominee. So while there is potential here, certainly, for the relationship to be better, a lot of Sanders supporters may go a different route. And I would add that one theme that I have picked up on from covering the Sanders movement over the last year is when I talk to activists, they say, look, we don't take our cues from the official campaign. And sometimes we don't even take our cues from Senator Sanders himself. We are an organic movement. We go our own way. We say what we want to say. We don't speak always with a unified voice. So even if Sanders is out there embracing Biden, campaigning with him, touting him, telling voters why he should be the next president, it's not clear that all of his supporters are going to fall in line behind it. Sean Sullivan covers politics for The Post. So the president has been using the podium in the White House briefing room to repeatedly declare that he thinks that there's a game-changing sort of miracle cure out there that could help stop the coronavirus pandemic. 
a drug called chloroquine. And some people would add to it hydroxy, hydroxychloroquine. And what he's talking about are a pair of old, decades-old anti-malarial drugs called chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine were invented um, in the 30s and 40s to treat malaria. The nice part is it's been around for a long time. So we know that if it, if, if things don't go as uh, planned, it's not going to kill anybody. And it's also been shown that it reduces inflammation, symptoms of real bad flare-ups for patients who have lupus, and also people uh, who have rheumatoid arthritis. And it's shown very encouraging, very, very encouraging early results. We have millions and millions of doses of it, uh, 29 million to be exact. In addition to that, we're making it. What do you have to lose? In some cases, they're in bad shape. What do you have to lose? It's been out there for a long time, and I hope they use it. It'll be a gift from heaven if it works. We don't have time to go and say, gee, let's take a couple of years and test it out. And let's go and test with the test tubes and the laboratories. We don't have time. I'd love to do that. But we have people dying today. As we speak, there are people dying. If it were me, in fact, I might do it anyway. I may take it. Okay? I may take it. But is there definitive scientific evidence so far that these two drugs are effective in treating the novel coronavirus? No, there's not. I'm Chris Rowland, and I'm the business of healthcare writer at The Washington Post. And that's really the problem of what the president's been talking about. He seems to be desperate to, you know, help people in the United States, give them some hope to cling to that there could be a treatment. There's no treatments for coronavirus at all. And these particular drugs have not been proven to attack coronavirus or uh, reduce the inflammation that it causes in severe respiratory distress in its patients. Uh, there have been some very small anecdotal studies of, you know, really small little groups of patients in France and China. But there's also other studies that show that no benefit of the drugs that are equally small. So it's really inconclusive and anecdotal, and you can't draw any big conclusions from it. So let me zoom out for a second, and let's talk a little bit more about this rush to try to find some kind of treatment for the novel coronavirus. What is the the body that is supposed to be overseeing these potential ideas or potential drugs that that are being considered as as possible treatments? And how are they handling this push to actually find something that could help people who have it right now? So really, the you know, the rush is on among the NIH, the CDC and the FDA. And the FDA is in charge of, you know, deciding whether or not uh, drugs should be approved and put on the market. The NIH is funding a number of clinical trials for various drugs, including these anti-malarials for coronavirus. And the CDC, of course, uh, is always interested in finding vaccines and treatments and has helped sponsor in its own labs a variety of investigations. In the case of the anti-malarials, what's happened is really highly unusual. And the Food and Drug Administration last week gave a emergency use authorization to allow these drugs to be widely distributed by the federal government to hospitals across the country to try on patients. Really, it's almost like a, a massive nationwide experiment to see if they work. And given that there's no evidence that they do work, it makes it quite remarkable and unprecedented. The other thing that's interesting about it and potentially alarming is that there are serious side effects with these drugs. 
And and what are those side effects and how serious can they be for coronavirus patients? Well, the side effects are potentially fatal in a small minority of patients. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine can cause arrhythmia in your heart. And uh, arrhythmia can spiral out of control and cause a heart attack, a fatal heart attack. And the doctors that I've spoken with say that there's about 1% of the population that is susceptible to a serious cardiac event from these drugs, and that another 10% are at more moderate risk. So you're talking about, you know, if these drugs are taken by a million or millions of people, that it could be thousands and thousands of people who could be in serious jeopardy by taking them. So there is a way to screen for that. You can check people on an electrocardiogram to make sure that they're not at risk. But it's not clear that many doctors even know that that is an appropriate step to take before they administer these drugs. So there is some serious downside and some serious risk. Uh, Another potential risk is that chloroquine does cause manic episodes in some people. And it also can, uh, long-term use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is associated with type of vision loss called retinopathy. And supplies of these drugs were not that huge to begin with because the number of people suffering from lupus and the particular people that were using it for rheumatoid arthritis, the pool of patients was not vast. And now with the frenzy surrounding these drugs, fueled not incidentally by, you know, President Trump from the White House saying everybody should go out and get it, has caused runs on the drug. It's caused hoarding. There's been stories of doctors prescribing it to themselves and their family members in multi-month supplies to take it so that uh, both prophylactically and in case they get sick. And hospitals have uh, basically you know, stocked up and wiped out supplies. And once this has happened, you know, on this sort of speculative bid to get some sort of treatment for coronavirus, it's wiped out the supply for the people who legitimately take it, knowing that it does help them. And that's lupus patients and rheumatoid arthritis patients. And I have heard stories of lupus patients going to the pharmacy and being accused of hoarding and saying, oh, you're just trying to get this. And they have to say, no, I'm a lupus patient. I've taken this for you know years and it, uh, it controls my symptoms and I really need it. So it is a very difficult situation out there. And the Trump administration has moved with some pharmaceutical companies to try to boost supplies that'll be available to distribute. And so If these drugs are being administered in a more experimental manner, is it being monitored at all? Is there a way to try to limit some of these side effects that could happen to people or at least take note of how often they are happening? Well, there are some some rigorous clinical trials going on that will be sort of the definitive statement. And around the world, the WHO is the World Health Organization is sponsoring some of those. The United States is sponsoring some. Um, other countries are sponsoring some, and those sort of, you know, in a few hundred patients at a time with controlled placebo arms will give a definitive result on whether or not it's working in, in coronavirus patients. So you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about some of the other treatments that are being considered as possibilities for helping people who are suffering from coronavirus. Are there any updates on those or are there other experimental treatments that are on the horizon that look like they could also be a potential? The main experimental treatment besides the antimalarials is a drug manufactured by Gilead called remdesivir. And uh, remdesivir 
also has shown effectiveness in vitro, meaning in test tubes in the lab, and also in uh, for MERS in monkeys. MERS is a, a related coronavirus to the f- current COVID-19. And so Gilead has been overwhelmed with uh, requests by people to use this drug in what's called a compassionate use. Uh, since it's not an approved drug by the FDA, you can't just get a prescription for it. So the only way to get it is to get approval for this expanded use or compassionate use if you're not in a clinical trial. So they've been flooded by requests so far as of this past weekend. Gilead says it's given it to 1,700 patients, uh, you know, and this is, again, a strictly experimental basis, and it's trying to ramp up for more. It says it has enough, it's going to be creating enough of the drug to give it to tens of thousands of people over time. The problem is that that's not happening fast enough for a lot of the families of people who are dying in ICUs right now. And so there's a lot of really desperate people out there trying to get the drug for their loved ones. They're calling members of Congress. They're calling the company. They're calling the FDA. They're calling administration officials. Anybody they can think of who has a connection to Gilead or can put pressure on Gilead to try to get the drugs. I spoke with the brother of Habib Ahmad, a 41-year-old ophthalmologist in Long Island who's in the ICU. And Habib has three kids and a wife who are, you know, they can't even visit him in the ICU right now because he's so sick and the danger of them getting infected by him is great. Uh, and they're really desperate to try anything to try to save him at this moment. Um, I did have a conversation with him when he first was admitted. Um, he just was in shock, in total shock about how he could have contracted this um, he was so um, in fear, uh, not knowing if he was going to live or die. So they have tried the anti-malarial drugs, and those did not work. And so now what the, the family really is desperate to try remdesivir for him. Of course, we had done our homework as well by uh, Googling and as well as listening to the White House briefings uh, by President Trump. Um, and there was mention of a drug made by a company, a drug company called Gilead. And they've asked Gilead, they've appealed to Gilead to provide the drug uh, with no success so far. His condition continues to be uh, critical in the ICU. Um, he continues to be on dialysis and on a ventilator and on presser medication. We do not have any other hope. We have no further course of action that we can do. So it's a really kind of sad situation. And again, there's no real evidence that remdesivir will work. That's Again, it's only in the lab. And they thought it would work on Ebola, and it didn't, and then in a clinical trial in Africa. So it's still a very long shot that it's, this is going to prove to be a silver bullet against coronavirus. There is no treatment, and our population is completely virgin territory for the virus. And it's sweeping across the entire human race literally, you know, that has no immunity, so no herd immunity. And for not an insignificant number of people, it has fatal consequences, you know, whether they're elderly or have comorbidities or even seemingly normal, healthy people in their 30s and 40s are susceptible to the severe respiratory distress that accompanies this virus. And there is no treatment, there's no vaccine. And so basically people are desperate to try anything. Those moments before he was intubated um, were the la- was the last time um, we had reached um, him by phone and by uh, communication. And the last words uh, from him to me is, please take care of my kids. 
you know, the desperation is real and it's widespread and that's being multiplied by tens of thousands of people across the country right now. Chris Rowland reports on the business of healthcare for The Post. President Trump has been uh, advocating the use of this drug. He's been talking about it as if it were some sort of magical solution that could cure people of the coronavirus, of COVID-19. And our reporting shows that his motivation to do so is driven really by a desire for a silver bullet. I'm Philip Rucker, White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. And do you know when the president first heard about this drug and and why he started to think of it as a silver bullet? You know, it's not entirely clear the very first time he heard about it. But over the last couple of weeks, the president has been hearing about the drug from friends in New York and, and in real estate who've been sharing with him anecdotal evidence of it working. This, this drug could save lives. He's been hearing from some of his advisors in the White House, including Peter Navarro, the top trade advisor. We are in the, the we are at war here. Who bring him printouts of articles about people around the country who have used the drug. Would I take it if I got yeah, sick? Would you take knowing what you know now? No, I, I would listen to my doctor. I would do. not consult someone involved with do. trade policy. We're taking I would not consult with someone with trade policy. I, I agree. And my question I, do I'm you want a doctor? Anything. Do you want a medical I'm doctor and internist? And then it's also formed a bit of a feedback loop. He hears about it when he turns on television. I also want to give a shout out to somebody called Tucker Carlson who, because of your attention to hydroxychloroquine... One hour after another on Fox News Channel. And we have observational data from around the globe that shows that hydroxy and azithro can drop a COVID patient's viral load. The anchors and the medical professionals who appear on that air talk about the drug. They tout it. Obviously not my lane, but I, it does seem promising. Trump and his team are latching on to these anecdotes and these examples, and it becomes an echo chamber. Laura Ingram, your coverage has been amazing. Thank you. Back at you, To the Andy. point where, you know, Laura Ingram, who hosts a 10 p.m. show on Fox News Channel that the president routinely watches. It seems like there are people out there who won't take yes for an answer when we have some promising therapies. She talks about it almost every night on her show with the doctors that she brings on the air as part of her quote-unquote medical cabinet. My medicine cabinet brings us the latest promising news on you bet hydroxychloroquine and we're going to hear from... And you know she actually came to visit the White House late last week last Friday and had a meeting with the president in the Oval Office. She brought two of her television doctors with her and the meeting was all about touting this drug and she was trying to make the case to the president that he needs to advocate for the drug. And how has that translated into actions that he and the administration have taken to try to get this drug into more people's hands? So the administration has allowed the drug to be distributed and and has arranged for it to be sent to a number of hospitals in the hotspots, including 
the New York and New Jersey areas. And President Trump has also been pressuring Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, to try to move faster in, in getting official approval for this drug, to try to promote it, uh, to try to say positive things about it. Commissioner Hahn has been reluctant to do so. Of course, the FDA has, you know, allowed for the drug to be purchased on the off-label market and is not stopping that. But short of any uh, conclusive scientific evidence and clinical testing that shows that this drug is safe and of use, the FDA cannot endorse it. And of course, when you're hearing scientists and doctors talk about this drug, for the most part, they talk about it with a lot of caveats, trying to make it clear that, that as you say, there aren't clinical trials and really thorough testing to actually know that it's having a positive effect on coronavirus victims. But we don't really hear those caveats coming from the president. No, not at all. And, and that's why a lot of public health officials believe that what President Trump is doing promoting this drug is, is really reckless and dangerous because he's telling Americans to go get this drug prescribed, to take it, that it will cure them without giving them the full facts and the full science, which says, you know, this is inconclusive. And, and more so than that, there are dangerous side effects that have been attributed uh, to this drug. And a few days ago, he went so far as to actually stop Dr. Anthony Fauci from answering a question at a press briefing on this drug and whether or not it actually is effective and safe for, for patients. Can weigh in on this issue of hydroxychloroquine? What, what do you think about this? And what is the, what is the medical evidence? That, yeah. that was a pretty remarkable moment. It was Sunday uh, in the daily coronavirus news briefing. And President Trump had already uh, spoken extensively about this drug and touted its efficacy. And then a CNN reporter, Jeremy Diamond, asked Dr. Fauci to give his medical opinion. I, I Maybe 15, 15 times. You don't have to ask He's, he's your medical expert, correct? He's answered that okay. question 15 times. Fauci, of course, is the public health expert, the physician uh, on the president's coronavirus task force. And before Fauci could even begin to answer the question, Trump cut him off and said, you don't have to answer that. And then he shamed, he scolded the CNN reporter for having had the nerve to ask. And, you know, the press conference ended without Fauci giving his opinion. So what does this tell us about how the president is going to continue to handle this pandemic? This moment is revealing in a couple of ways. It shows the desperation that President Trump feels to find a solution out of the pandemic, which is not only a public health crisis, but it's also an economic crisis. And for him personally, it's a political crisis with his reelection just, you know, eight months down the road in November. And so he's desperate for a solution. He wants a fix. He has hope that this is the one. And he's kind of latched onto it at this point and going to ride it until it can be proven definitively that this drug will not work or until another solution comes along. The trouble is, as you know, one close ally of the president's put it to us in our reporting for this story, the president lives in a world of wishes and hopes. This is not real. And, and for him to be communicating this can be very dangerous to the public at a time when people, millions of people around the country are turning to Washington for some answers and guidance in how they can make it through this pandemic. Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. And now, one more thing from style editor Steve Kolowich, a remembrance of singer-songwriter John Prine. I 
Crine had this talent for shrinking tragedy and comedy down to where he could balance both on his tongue at the same time. One of his first lyrics that really got hooks in me was this refrain in the song called Fish and Whistle. Father, forgive us for what we must do. You forgive us, we'll forgive you. We'll forgive each other till we both turn blue. And that struck me as this funny but also very deep way of kind of submitting to a higher power while also saying, you know, the world is set up as a pretty rough place. So listen, this is kind of on you too. <laughs> One of the songs that really turned people's heads early on was a song called Sam Stone about a veteran back from Vietnam who developed a heroin addiction. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. He sang about all kinds of things, uh, the tension of romance at every stage of a relationship, the loneliness of old age. He had a song called Dear Abby, which is written as a bunch of fake submissions to the old advice columnist. Dear Abby, dear Abby, my feet are too long. My hair is falling out and my rights are all... Where he had all these people writing in with bizarre problems and they all get the same answer, the same advice. You are what you are and you ain't what you ain't. So listen up, Buster. But often he would return by one path or another to the theme of death and the afterlife. Woke up this morning, put on my slippers, walked in the kitchen and died. There's a song I thought of when I learned John Prine was sick. It's called Please Don't Bury Me. The world bombards us with senseless tragedy all the time, and John Prine's death is one of them. But if you listen to his songs, he's pointing us away toward the light where sadness and laughter are in a more tolerable balance. Give my stomach to Milwaukee if they run out of beer. Put my socks in a cedar box, just get them out of here. John Prine died of complications from the coronavirus on Tuesday. He was 73 years old. Steve Kolowich is an editor for the Style Section. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're on Facebook and you're not a member of the Post Reports group, you're missing out. It's where we talk about the news and stories from our podcast and general thoughts on living in these strange times. To join, go to facebook.com slash postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 